0: Psalm 135 tonight. We're so glad that each of you are here this evening, and I trust you've come expecting to hear from the Lord. I want to talk to you tonight about this simple truth. The Lord should be praised. Psalm 135 is a praise psalm. In fact, if you flip through your Bible from here you're going to notice that most of the psalms going into Psalm 150 are going to have the theme of praise. So our messages in the study of the psalms from here, Psalm 135, for the next 15 psalms up to Psalm 150, most of them will be on the theme of praise. And we know tonight that the Lord... Should be praised. That's exactly what this psalm is stating. The psalm is a call to worship, it's a proclamation of the worthiness of Jehovah to receive our praise and our worship. An interesting point about this psalm, before we read it, is that it is full of quotes from other passages of Scripture. And it is likewise quoted in other places of the Scripture. And this is just a reminder to us that the Holy Spirit does repeat himself. But whenever he does, it's always for a good reason. Psalm 135, look in here tonight as I read and look for the reasons that we ought to praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord. For the Lord is good, sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. Who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, who sent tokens and wonders into the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants, who smote great nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land for an heritage, and heritage unto Israel his people. Thy name, O Lord, endureth forever, and thy memorial, O Lord, throughout all generations, for the Lord will judge his people And he will repent himself concerning his servants. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Ye that fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, which dwelleth at Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and to the exposition of this psalm tonight. We notice in the first three verses that there is a call sent forth to praise the Lord. Tonight, I want you for just a moment to imagine that the psalmist is speaking to you. He is encouraging you and admonishing you to praise the Lord. Do you notice in the first couple of verses here, there is a threefold call to praise the Lord. It is repeated Three times that we ought to praise the Lord right there in that first verse. He wants us to praise the Lord. It's no mistake that there's three calls to worship and our God is a triune God. And notice this threefold call real quickly in verse 1. First of all, he states simply, praise ye the Lord, hallelujah. Then he says, praise ye the name of the Lord, Then he says, praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Notice here in this call to worship and to praise God that we are called to praise the name of the Lord. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. The name of the Lord is his revelation of himself. When we use the names of God that God has revealed in the scriptures We are talking to God in a way that he wishes to be addressed. You know, for instance, when someone tells you, this is my name, this is how I would like you to address me, it's generally polite to return that to them and to address them as they have asked to be uh, named or called. Now, obviously within reason. But imagine that a name is something where we are saying something about ourselves. We are revealing our identity. We're asking this person to recognize who we are and to call us by that name. We are to praise God by using his names. You think about God's names, they are manifold. There are quite a few of them that are revealed in the scripture. But the name that is in central focus in Psalm 135 is the name Jehovah. He is the Lord. And this particular name of God highlights the fact that He is self-existent and that He does not change. When we think about God as Jehovah, we are reminded that He has always been the same and He always will be the same And he needs no one and no thing in order to exist. You and I should take careful pains to praise God... ...according to what he has told us about himself. Let us be careful not to praise God in a way that is pleasing to us. But let us praise God in a way that is pleasing to him. And God tells us that what is pleasing to him is when we address him by his name. You'll notice in verse 1 that it is the servants of the Lord in particular who are called to praise the Lord. And tonight, if you're a child of God and you regard yourself to be a servant of the Lord, just for one moment, you ought to say, Thank you, Lord, for giving me the privilege of serving you and praising you. If you're a child of God, this is a tremendous privilege for us to praise God, to worship him as he truly is. This is a wonderful privilege for us. Now he goes on in verse 2, he speaks to these servants of the Lord and he describes their place. He says, first of all, that they're standing in the house of the Lord in the courts Of the house of our God. So these are worshipers. These are people who have come to the house of the Lord in order to worship God. And here in this place, they are being commanded, called to come and to praise God. Isn't it strange that even in the house of God, we sometimes have to be reminded what we're here for? We can come to the house of the Lord with the wrong purpose with the wrong focus, with the wrong outlook. And sometimes we need somebody to say, hey, we're here to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You say, but I've got things on my mind. Praise the Lord. I've got things to get done. Praise the Lord. But I'm hoping to learn something. Praise the Lord. He wants us to focus on praising the Lord. If we come to God's house in the New Testament era, the New Testament church, We come to the assembly, and all we accomplish is praising the Lord. We really have accomplished something significant. So he tells us, praise the Lord. You're there in the house, and you need to praise him. Now, why should we praise him in verse 3? He sums it up. This is really the summation of what he's going to talk about in the rest of the psalm. In verse 3, he tells us to praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. Do you know that his name, God, means good? And he is the giver of all things that are good. God is good. It does us well to be reminded that God is good. Because there are times in our lives where we question the goodness of God. But he is always good. He is always good. To his people. Tonight we can praise the Lord because no matter what situation you might find yourself in, no matter what trial you may be going through, what difficulty you might be facing, you can always know in every situation that your God is good. There is always, in other words, something to praise God for. But not only is God good, his name is pleasant. His name is pleasant. There's something very special about the name of the Lord. And for a child of God to meditate upon the name of God, to, uh, to uh, mull over in your mind the meaning of his name and thus to worship him, to speak with him about his name is a very pleasant thing indeed. Our thoughts about God tell us a lot about us as individuals, about our walk with God. We should strive to think biblically about God. We should indeed strive to think deep thoughts about God because there is no more profound subject than the subject of our God and his identity. So he says we should praise him Our thoughts will be very pleasant when we're meditating upon his person, the one who is the subject of our praise. Now, why is he good? So there's a call to praise the Lord, and now in verses 4 through 14, he gives us some reasons to praise the Lord. And we're going to just go through these somewhat quickly. Most of these pertain to the nation of Israel with applications to those of us who are believers today. But notice that he says, first of all, that God ought to be praised because he had chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. The idea being that God has chosen his people. And if we look back on the nation of Israel, there was not anything in Jacob uh, who later his name was changed to Israel. And of course, from him came the descendants that would make up the nation of Israel. But in Jacob, there really was nothing that God saw that said, oh, I'm getting a real catch when I get Jacob. In fact, we study about his life, and we might scratch our head and say, why would God pick him? Why would God choose him, and why would God use him? And it's a reminder to us that God, for his pleasure, chose Jacob and chose the nation of Israel, and he did so in order to highlight his grace. And we can be thankful tonight that God has chosen, that God offers salvation. And he has chosen all those who will believe. And he said, if you will come in repentance and faith, you'll be my people. Now, what a privilege it is to be called the people of God. But before you get a big head about being the people of God, just remember, he didn't choose you. Because he saw something special, he chose you simply because he loves you, simply because he cares about you. You say, why is human life so valuable? For one reason, because God said it's valuable, because God created man. So for the choosing of his people tonight, if you've been saved, if you're a child of God, then you ought to say, praise the Lord. For his choosing, praise the Lord for his working in my life. Praise the Lord that he drew me to himself. Praise the Lord for salvation, which is all of Christ and all of God's grace. But not only for the choosing of his people should we praise the Lord, but also in verse 5 we find we should praise the Lord because of his great supremacy. He's described in verse 5 as being great and as being above all God's. The word great means that he is magnificent, he's large, he's the most important and the most significant. When we think about God, he is greater than we can even imagine. He is above all other gods that could be worshipped. It's an interesting thing to think about the fact that man is a worshipper. Men worship all sorts of things, but there is no one that is so worthy of worship as Jehovah, as the Lord. So tonight, we ought to praise him because of his great supremacy. The psalmist will return to that theme a little bit later in the psalm. In verse 6, he says we should praise the Lord because of his sovereign works. He's described in verse 6 as doing whatever he pleases. No one tells God what to do. Now, I've met some people who think that they are God's boss. They like to, to talk about how they tell God what he should do and shouldn't do. And they like to criticize God. And they like to belittle God. And they like to say, well, if he's really God, why would he do this? And they say foolish things like, well, can he make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? And they think they're very clever. But the truth is, one day, those individuals with their mockery will stand in front of the God who is supreme and who is sovereign, and they will regret the things that they have said mockingly about this God. The truth is, God does whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, but you can be sure that whatever He does, it will be right and it will be good. He does whatever He wants in the earth and the heaven. No one tells Him what to do because He is sovereign. Men may try to question this God, but he's above all of man's questioning. Verse 7, we find that he has great power in creation. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. That's fascinating, isn't it? We were uh, just not far from here. We stayed in a house about an hour away from here. And this morning when we got up, there was a mist that was coming off the mountain such that you could hardly see the mountain, which wasn't that far away. The mist was so heavy and you you see that mist kind of hanging there, suspended in the sky, and then eventually it, it goes away. And you say, where did, where did that all go? Well, notice it says, God causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. What do we find about God's power in creation? Well for one thing, he's in charge of the water cycle. That's what's talked about there with the vapors. And he's the one who causes it to rain. And he's the one who came up with the whole design of how the water cycle works. I don't have time to talk about that tonight, but it's fascinating to think about how water, you know, we, we live in this age and we I think so many people think, well, where does water come from? I go to the faucet and turn it on and it comes out. That's, That's where it comes from. It's a little more complicated than that. And it's amazing to think about how in nature the water is in this great cycle that goes around and around. And sometimes the water, like we've just been experiencing for the last couple of weeks here, where's the water? It's not raining. The grass is all drying up. Everything's turning brown. What's going on? And then in other places, there's so much rain, they don't know what to do with it all. See, God is in charge of that. He also makes the lightnings for the rain. Lightning carries tremendous energy. One bolt of lightning coming from the heavens to the earth, which we're told is somehow made with static electricity out in the atmosphere. I mean, I think that's about what the scientists understand. God is the one who designed it all. And that lightning comes down to the earth with such tremendous energy. And whenever I see lightning, I think that's God saying, Hey, I'm over here. Don't forget about me. I have a lot of power. Amen. I mean, when, when there's a clap of thunder and a bright flash of lightning, it gets your attention, doesn't it? That's nothing compared to the brilliance of our God. Amen. He also brings the wind out of his treasuries. Where does the wind come from? Well, according to this verse, God makes the wind blow. You say, well, it's the vectors and the, and the, the, the rising currents and the heat and the cold. You know, it's all... Sure it is. I, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but that's about all that men can understand, you see. It's God who came up with this idea of the wind. He's the one who allows the wind to blow. Isn't the wind a wonderful thing on a hot summer day? Get the breeze blowing a little bit and cools you off? That's the Lord. So we see Him, His power displayed in creation. Verses 8 through 12 describe His past works on behalf of Israel. In verse 8, it's a reminder about Passover, about how God... Delivered his people out of the nation of Israel by smiting the firstborn of the land of Egypt, of man and of beast. He brought Israel out with a strong hand. Of course, that was after what is referred to in verse 9. He gave tokens and wonders in the midst of Egypt upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants. But miracle after miracle after miracle, and Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused God and said, no, I won't. I'm not going to let them go. And finally, God said, yes, you will let them go. Amen. And God brought them out. Isn't it remarkable how often we are exposed to the miraculous hand of God Every day day we see his works around us and we become callous to it. We we can harden our heart. We can get to the place. People get to the place where they say, prove to me there's a God. Prove to you there's a God. Um, Take a breath. How did that happen? Oh, I I just noticed that your heart is beating. That's a miracle. You know, these, these are things that God made, that He designed in Egypt. They were exposed to the miracles of God's hand, but they hardened their heart, and then God broke their rebellion, and He delivered Israel from Egypt. After He brought Israel out of Egypt, and He began to bring them into the Promised Land, verses 10 and 11, talk about how they were allowed to conquer the land. They smote great nations. They slew mighty kings. As they came in, to the land of Canaan, a land that was possessed by other people. God said, this is your land, I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to give you the victory. You're going to step forward by faith. He gave them victory over Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. God gave them victory after victory after victory. They saw the hand of God over and over and over again. Of course, this is recorded mostly in the book of Joshua, as they saw victories ...in different cities and against different armies... ...and God gave them the land, verse 12... ...and he told them this land is going to be a heritage unto Israel... ...my people, I'm giving you this land for you to keep... ...and now the psalmist is saying, look back on our history... ...here we are standing in the city of Jerusalem... ...and be reminded that this land is the gift of God to us. God has been good to us. Remember, he's saying, praise the Lord... Praise the Lord for what He's done in the past. Now, this is for the Israelites. We can certainly praise God for what He did for the Israelites. We benefit from that, by the way. Ultimately, all of this has everything to do with the coming of the Messiah, His death in our place. But then I want you to think for just a minute, what has God done, done for you in your past? Can you look back and see God's hand? See God delivering? See God working? Are there some things tonight that you can say, Lord, I want to praise you because of what you did back there. Because of how you've worked in my life in the past. Not only should we praise the Lord because of the choosing of his people, because of his great supremacy, because of his sovereign works, because of his power in creation, because of his past works on behalf of Israel, but we also can praise God tonight because of his enduring name. In verse 13... The psalmist says, thy name, O Lord, endureth forever. And thy memorial, O Lord, throughout all generations. And I want to point out to you again, the the name that is in focus for us here tonight is the name Jehovah. And the reminder is that his name will always be Jehovah. His name endureth forever. Names do not tend to last forever. One day people are going to forget your name. Uh, Unless you're an extremely notable person who ends up written about in the history books, nobody's going to remember you. I'm not trying to offend you tonight, but be honest with me. Have you ever walked through a cemetery and looked at the names on the headstones and said, I wonder who that was? I wonder what they did. Maybe there'll be a little saying there about them. And you say... I wonder what their life was like. They were real people. Their name was known to people at one time, but now they're forgotten. That's because we pass away. But our God, his name endureth forever. You can be sure that he always will be Jehovah. Jehovah is always the same without any shadow of turning. Now, this is a tremendous consolation to us Because we don't have to worry about him being in a bad mood. We don't have to worry about him being capricious or changing his his mind or the way that he works. We don't have to worry about him uh, somehow, you know, one day getting up and saying, I forgot what I did yesterday. It's not going to happen. He's always the same. He is immutable. That word means he never changes. He has no deviation from his perfect character. And because of this, according to verse 13, because his name endureth forever, his memorial or the remembrance of him should be remembered throughout all generations. In other words, we ought to be just as passionate about worshiping Jehovah as the people who were delivered out of Egypt. Sure, they had a lot to be thankful for, but we also ought to worship God in the same way. All ought to praise Him. Do you realize tonight that we were created by God for the purpose of worship? For the reason that we would praise Him? This is actually how we were designed. This is what God made us for. So tonight, worship Him and praise Him because of His enduring name. Verse 14, we can praise him because he is a God of justice and a God of mercy. Now, you'll notice in verse 14, it says, first of all, the Lord will judge his people. And I want to think about that for just a moment. Can you imagine what it would be like if we had no hope that God would judge sin? That God would right the wrongs? There are a lot of wrongs that are going on in our world today. There's a lot of things that are way outside of our control. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I read the newspaper and I get upset about some of the things that are going on. And there is nothing that I can do about those things. But there is great consolation in saying there is a God in heaven who is a righteous judge. And he is going to hold these folks to account. He is going to bring them to judgment. So the Lord will judge. Now you'll notice that it specifically says he will judge his people. And the thing is that in the nation of Israel, there were times when his own people were not living according to his commandments. They were not being consistent with what they should have been doing as the people of God. And God said, I'm going to judge. We're studying this on Sunday mornings in our Bible discovery groups as we're going through the minor prophets and learning that God promised that he would judge his people. And in fact, he did judge his people. We can praise God tonight because of his justice. It's a consolation to us that he is a just God. But he also points out in verse 14, and he will repent himself concerning his servants. And what this is referring to is the mercy of God. It's referring to the fact that though God will judge his people, he is a God who abundantly pardons. There were times when God would say about a people, for instance, remember the city of Nineveh? And God said, you go, Jonah, and you tell them that I'm going to judge them. And Jonah went and preached, and those people repented, and they got right with God. And God said, I see their repentance. I'm not going to judge them now. He had mercy upon them. It's a wonderful consolation to know that our God is a God of mercy. That those who come to him looking for forgiveness will find forgiveness. Amen. Because he is a God who abundantly pardons. You can thank God tonight for his justice and his mercy. There's a call to praise the Lord. There are some reasons to praise the Lord. Then in verses 15 through 18, the psalmist strikes out on a similar theme that is in agreement with everything that he has said up to this point. And he begins to talk about the insanity of worshiping any gods besides the Lord. He spent all this time, 14 verses, telling us how great and how good God is. And then it's like in verse 15, he says, yeah, there's... There's people who worship other gods. And he says these gods, the idols of the heathen, are silver and gold. The work of men's hands. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment. What are these gods? Well, these gods are called the idols of the heathen. We're familiar with the word idol. It generally refers to a graven image. It's when someone takes some kind of raw material and they fashion a god so that they can worship that god. And the psalmist is bringing to our attention, there's all of these idols. Do you know today there's plenty of idols that men worship. Some of them are fashioned with the hands. Some of them are fashioned with the mind. But there's lots and lots of gods that people worship. Lots of pursuits that men have besides the god of heaven. In this case, he says these idols of the heathen are made out of silver and gold. Because men say, if we're going to worship these gods, they need to be made out of precious metals. So we're going to make them out of the most valuable metals that we're familiar with, silver and gold. And then we're going to call these things our gods. Except the psalmist says, this is strange. Because they're taking their own hands and raw materials, and they're fashioning these gods with their hands, and then they're saying, this is our God. Doesn't that seem strange, the work of men's hands? If I made this chair, if I fashioned this in my wood shop and brought it in and said, I made this, and this is our new God, we're going to bow down and worship this God. Everybody come up around and let's bow down and worship this God. You'd say, pastor has gone nuts. He's crazy. Because think about it. How can something that you make be your God? Isn't God supposed to be greater, more powerful, over you? But men like gods that they can control. Gods of their own making. So they make gods with their own hands out of silver and gold or other things. Then he goes on in verse 16. And he says, these gods are so strange because they make them with mouths, but you never hear them speak. They make them with eyes, but they don't see anything. They make them with ears, but they don't hear anything. You know, a few years ago, I was in Thailand visiting our missionaries there. And in every neighborhood... In, in the towns there, you'll find a spirit house. And the spirit house is maintained by someone in the neighborhood. And every day, they bring food to the spirit house for the spirits, for the gods that they worship. And they put them in the house, and they leave. And then at the end of the day, they come, and they take the food out, and they take it away. And then the next day, they bring more food, and they leave it there. And then at the end of the day, they come and they take it away. And nobody says, maybe they do, but it doesn't seem like anybody says, "Hmm, if this is such a powerful God, why doesn't it ever eat the food? This is strange. And they'll do this day in and day out and day in and day out. I'm sure they have explanations for it. I remember many years ago being in Mexico City, And the house that I stayed in, an elderly lady was the owner of that house and she had in a corner of one of her rooms a place where she had her idols that she would bow down to. And those idols had little mementos and things in them and it was in a prominent place, it was in a place of honor and I guarantee if I had ever tried to touch that idol or do anything to that she would have been furious with me because to her that was her God. But you know, in all the time I was there, I never saw that God move. I never heard that God speak. I never saw that God do anything. But to her, that was her God. Now, the psalmist is saying, this is what men do. They fashion these gods. And these gods, he says, don't have any breath in their mouth. And the idea is, they're not alive. They're dead. He says in verse 18... They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Now, I'm not a big proponent of sarcasm, but what you're reading is some sarcasm. Because the psalmist is saying they're making these things with their hands and worship, worshiping them like their gods, but they're just blocks of silver and gold. They're inanimate objects they're not alive they're not real it's like a big play game it's an imagination date and and they're just making it all up in their mind and he says the people who make them are like them in other words they're kind of dense they're not picking up on this that what they've made to worship is not really a god there's something that is going now Romans chapter 1 sheds some light on this, doesn't it? Because we learn that when men begin to refuse the knowledge of God, they trend into things that are unreasonable. They begin to worship the creature more than the creator, and the wrath of God is going to come upon them. We're told that uh, in another passage that they become willfully ignorant to the truth. When men don't want to worship God, they become willful in their rebellion against God. And they'll take anything that would be a substitute. I mean, very intelligent, bright people right now. Scientists who pride themselves in their rigorous examination of the evidence will not even tolerate any discussion that perhaps God could have created the world that is. They would rather have a discussion that would involve the possibility of extraterrestrial life seeding our planet. As opposed to God. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? People become willfully ignorant. And you say, why do they do that? Because they don't want to know God. Now remember, this is all in the context of praising God. Because either you're praising God or you're praising something that isn't God. And he's saying, if you're not worshiping God, then you're worshiping something because you're made a worshiper. You're, you're made by God to be a worshiper. And if you're not worshiping God, the thing you're worshiping is less than God, and it's probably less than you. And the real reason that you worship something that is less than you is because the person that you really are worshiping is you. That's what it's all about. It's you, it's self. And this is, an, this is a hopeless end. So he says, you have the choice, you could praise God or you can praise these other gods. You can praise the gods that you make with your hand or with your imagination. Or you can praise the God who has revealed himself. And people say, well, I can't, I can't really get behind this worship of God. I mean, it, he doesn't make any sense to me. You talk about things like the, the Trinity, the, the Godhead. You talk about things like him existing, always having been, and always being. How is that even possible? That doesn't make any sense to my mind. Of course it doesn't make any sense to your mind. Amen. If you could understand him fully, he wouldn't be God. By the very nature of saying that he is God, that he is above us, it means that he must be above us. That there must be things that we don't comprehend. So the psalmist says, don't stoop to worshiping these other things. Because that's insanity. In verse 19, he returns to his theme. And he says, don't forget to bless the Lord. Now, remember, blessing the Lord and praising the Lord, they go right together. They're the same type of exercise. And in verse 19, he calls out to the house of Israel. He calls out to the house of Aaron. They are the priests. He calls out to the house of Levi. This is the particular tribe that has to do with all of the things surrounding the worship of God. (laughs) He calls out to those who fear the Lord. Why is he mentioning these people? Because these are people who ought to know what it means to worship God. You, as believers, as blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ, you ought to know what it means to worship the Lord. You are the ones who are given the task of blessing the Lord and praising the Lord Do you think that people who don't know God are going to be praising him? That's our job. So he calls out to these people and he says, this is your job. You are to be praising the Lord. You ought to bless the Lord. In verse 21, he says that this blessing or this praise is intended to come. It's to be directed to the Lord out of Zion. Zion is the dwelling place of Jehovah. And I think the idea in verse 21 is that it's not intended for the worship of the Lord to stay in Zion. It's intended for it to be sounded out from Zion by way of comparison. It's a wonderful thing when we can gather here in in this auditorium, here in this building, and we can see each other and we can sing and we can praise and give testimony and talk about how good God's been to us and we can worship Him. And that's a wonderful thing. But it's not God's intention that that stay right here in this place. It's God's intention that it would be sounded out from here into the community that surrounds. Out into our state, out into our nation, out into the world. The praise of God is intended to go forth from his dwelling place. And to affect the lives of those who've never heard. To all places. Don't forget to bless the Lord. Amen. You may think it's insignificant, but you never know what an impact it might have on someone's life for you to publicly praise God when you're around people who don't know God. That's right. You say, but it's not going to mean anything to them because they don't even know him. They, they have no idea who he is. Well, that's the point. Amen. We're supposed to be telling people who he is. We're supposed to be making a big deal about what he means to us. We ought to be praising the Lord. The psalmist ends simply with the phrase, the sentence, Praise ye the Lord. It's an assumption, a command, it's an obligation, it's something that God intends for us to participate in. Praise ye the Lord. Tonight, the call has gone forth, reasons have been given. We've been warned not to pursue after other gods, but to worship the true God. And we've been reminded that in all of our pursuits, don't forget to bless the Lord. As you leave this place tonight, as you go about your business, as you visit with one another, as you go back out into the workaday world tomorrow, don't forget to praise the Lord. Because the Lord should be praised. He's worthy of it.